went up there, we went through a bottle, worked our butts off, came down, refilled our bottles, changed the saw blades, filled the saws up with gas, went back up and went through another entire bottle. And uh, we just continued to work our way east. What's up, my brothers and sisters? Today we're talking with my good friend, Greg Hawk, and we talk a little bit about his pending retirement. We talk about being a professional and mental health and training and life on the squad. He shared with uh, shared with me a couple of recent calls they had, and we, we chatted about that. And of course, we talked about picking. In any case, great episode. Give it a listen. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Rain Gray. Here, we're going to talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fire ground. The opinions expressed are mine and those of the guest. So, let's get started. So, Greg Hawk, we sat down a few months ago, or however long ago it was, and we talked about kind of, man, we went yard on all this different stuff. We talked about health. We talked about squad life. We talked about, um, what else are we talking about? Juicing. Juicing and triathlon and snakes and really uh, great conversation. And interestingly, I had a guy come up to me. Uh, he didn't come up to me, sorry. He sent me a message and said, hey, man, um, after listening to Hawk, I want to be a squad guy now. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God, another another wannabe squad guy. Can't keep him away. Everybody wants to be a squad guy. That's pretty funny. There's a... Uh the guys that have Instagram on the truck, we follow this group out of the East. I think they're out of Georgia, somewhere back there, but they have an Instagram page. Cancel the squad. Mm-hmm. It's all based on canceling the squad and the haters, haters, the haters. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. We got recalled on a, uh, came out as a commercial possible hazmat commercial fire the other day and ended up being nothing and said recalled so i took a picture of recall squad 44 and then we continued onto the scene and then i hit on scene so showed squad 44 on scene. i thought it was kind of funny that's hilarious did you send that to those guys uh well i sent it to my instagram god so he could fill it in in some story he's like the social media guy. i'm not really good at the whole social media thing. i like posting pictures and hitting a button if i have to do all that other editing stuff yeah i don't do very well yeah there's a lot of work that can go into it you gotta gotta know what you're doing mm-hmm. so what have you been up to man oh brother i've been trying to get this hawk salvage place up and running which mm-hmm. is a lot of work yeah uh, yeah and every time i turn around i'm writing a check for something <laughs> and then, uh, man, I found myself in, uh, in a weird state of mind because, you know, I signed my drop paperwork and I'm almost done. I got a little over two years in the face of the fire service, I think is changing, uh, so much, not just in the firefighting aspect of things, but, you know, homeland defense and security and hazmat calls and new threats and, you know, the changing theater, the field that we work in. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an exciting time to be a fireman. Yeah. Up and coming for the new guys. So it makes I'm, you sad that you're leaving? I'm a little bummed. I think I signed a little bit too early. But I'll be leaving the job happy and motivated and not hating life. Um, like, you know, you see, unfortunately, some see some people do. Yeah. That's, you know, that's a, absolutely. Sometimes the water gets poisoned. <laughs> You yeah. forget. I, well, you know what? I think you lose sight. You get caught up in the, um, the mundane, the mundane, mundanity. Is that a word? I'm, I'm, using, I'm using that word. I'm calling it a word. The mundanity, mundanity yeah. of the job. Sometimes the routine of the job, right? And 
uh, you can uh, lose sight of what brought you to the table, right? Why did you start this in the first place? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's important. What uh, I don't know if I ever asked you that. What what caused you to come in the fire service? Uh, I don't know. I think I was destined to be a fireman. I think back when I was three and four years old that I was, you know, set in the back of my Tonka truck houses, zoo farms, barns on fire in the backyard and watching smoke come out the windows and all that other stuff. So I think I was on the edge between pyromaniac and fireman. I think that's a pretty common common yeah. story. And then once I got out here, I think we talked about it before, but once I uh, rode on a fire truck and got a taste, that was it, man. I was hooked. Yeah. Period. <laughs> mm-hmm. Here I am. Yeah. That, um, how many years has it been? <clears throat> How long you um, I've got almost 30 here in Phoenix, and I work for almost four in Scottsdale. So, mm. yeah, most of that on busy trucks. And I still love it, man. I freaking love it. I love the, you talk about the mundane calls. We do get a lot of mundane calls, but uh, it goes with the territory. That's what, you know, it's like, that's what pays our bills or whatever. That's what we do. Right. You know, we run a lot of calls. And, you know, Phoenix is kind of proud, 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 proud. What, is, what am I looking for? Oh, are we going to have that kind of day? <laughs> Prided, <laughs> prided. Uh, I just I was pretty excited about Phoenix Fire Department because it was all about customer service, you know, and Mrs. Smith and all that stuff that you read. I mean, the customer's always right, and we do when when there's no options left, people call Phoenix Fire Department. That's what we can't lose sight of with with the fire department here, fire service here. You know, we're going to run those stupid calls, you know, and you just you have to be nice for seven minutes, fifteen minutes, <laughs> try to make them feel like. We help them and then back waiting for the the real call. <laughs> well, the real call. So that's, I think that's, there, there's the problem, right? That, We're it. waiting for the real call. And so everything else becomes, uh, quote, stupid. Yeah. Close quote. Right. So that, uh, we have to, we have to maintain that perspective. Um, you know, that, okay. So I think this is an interesting conversation because, <clears throat> excuse me, when we, we have to remember that, uh, and we get this sense of entitlement, right? Let me frame this the right way. We get this sense of entitlement and we're waiting for the call for the big one the, that's worthy of my efforts, right? And so um, the reality, though, is that the city has employed us to provide service in every one of these, you know, you know when, the, when the tones drop, we go regardless. And so it's important to maintain that perspective and recognize that. Uh, that this is a job and um, it is a career path we have chosen and we have to be the consummate professional uh, regardless of what the call is. And, um, it's, you know, sometimes you lose sight of that. I think it's important that we, you know, we, we reset our, we, re- we recalibrate our customer service meter and recognize that we have to be customer focused. You know, when people call, we, it's about them, not about us. Whatever we, you know, we're there for 24 hours to serve them. And, uh, I agree with that 100%. It actually, uh, it reminds me of a story that I wanted to get into the podcast last time and I didn't. Oh, well, no time like the, no time present. like the present. You know, and I, I agree it's difficult. You know, I don't know if it's entitled or God, this guy's bugging us again or the repeat customer or whatever. The bottom line is that we get paid to take care of those people. Right. I mean, that's, that, that is our job. Right. You know, so. Well, it is called the fire service. Mm-hmm. Right. So we are in the service industry and, you know, the, the crux of that is being willing and able to go out and serve the community and 
there's a lot of different faces in that community and they provide all kinds of different challenges. Sometimes those challenges are to our patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? absolutely. And well, guess what? The professional sucks that up and rolls on. Yeah, I've become one of those old captains that has weird quirks that people make fun of. You don't say. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Like, Give uh, me an example. Get on the truck when the lights come on. When the lights come on, drop what you're doing and get on the truck so you can go on the call. That's it. I like getting out of the station fast. The other thing is that be nice to people. And, you know, that's why I have that. I think we talked about the tap-out rule. If we're on somebody that's absolutely rubbing you the wrong way, you can tap me on the shoulder and walk to the truck. Perfectly okay with that rather than say something stupid. But I'll give you I, – I, our job is not to judge people or make fun of them because they have, you know, 30 cats or they smoke 10 packs of cigarettes a day or because they choose to drink every day, which probably isn't a choice because alcoholism is a savage, serious, crazy, sad disease. Yeah. Well, it might have been a choice at one point, And then, you know, when that disease then sets in, not it, one. yeah, I think they lose, you can lose control. So I'll tell you a story. I worked at a station for a while and we used to run on this guy. I'll just say John was his name. So we used to run on John. It seemed like every shift or every other shift. And he was always liquored unconscious, altered, dirty, smelly, you know, incontinent to something, uh, a mess. <clears throat> sometimes he would be seizing and sometimes, you know, he would, he'd be good. And, you know, we'd, you know, have him sign and try to move on his way, but we ran on him all the time and he was a total pain in the butt. We were always nice to this guy, right? So didn't really know what his history was, never really judged him, never made fun of him or anything. One day we're at work and we get a call for a seizure at a house in a fairly nice residential area. Uh, same first dude, nothing out of the ordinary or crazy. So we go on this call and uh, this old guy's up front. He goes, yeah, he's in the backyard. So we walk through the gate and we go in the backyard and it's our transient guy, John, John. that we run on all the time. I was like, what? I'm thinking to myself, what the hell's going on here? So we're looking at him and... He's having a seizure. Because he's completely know. out of his normal context for you guys. Yeah. I mean, he's usually at the corner, in the bushes, or in the rocks, you know, or something. In the backyard in the house, we're, like, trying to figure out how he got back here and all this other stuff. So, anyway, we're taking care of him and go over and talk to the, this guy. And I go, hey, uh, I go, how did you get back here? And he goes, well, it's, it's actually my son. And I was like, wow, this is your son? He goes, yeah, it's, it's actually a pretty tragic story. He was uh, a real successful businessman. Had a great life, had a fantastic job. He was married with two brand new, beautiful kids, and uh, his wife was suffering from postpartum depression. He came home from work one day, and his wife had shot his two kids and then killed herself. Goodness gracious! And he told his dad that he didn't have the balls to kill himself, so he was going to drink until he died. And all I could think was, "Oh my God, I'm so glad that we've always been nice to this guy." Because how could you ever put that sort of pain into perspective? You know, yeah, to have that in your back pocket and to have a bunch of, you know, firefighters come up and give you a hard time because they run on you all the time was just, I was just so thankful. Great guys on the truck at that time. And it was just really, we were never, we never mistreated that guy. We never said anything stupid to him. We always took care of him and, and sent him in. I'm so happy. Probably one of the, I don't know, I wouldn't say happier moments in my career, but one of the most you know, thank God we always did the right thing for that guy because I can't imagine ever going through tragedy like that. Yeah, it's it is really amazing. You think that you know, it's 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 hard to realize that every every customer we run on, every person, let's just you know, call it the, the human beings, all these human beings that we have an opportunity to interact with, have a backstory, and 
it is, you know, of course you can't personally connect with every single person, right? It would wear you to write down, but maintaining a level of humanity and, and, and empathy is really important. Um, and that's something I think is worthy of striving toward. I don't know that you, I don't know that it's, uh, you know, when we talk about compassion fatigue and, and other elements that can creep in, but we have to find ways to strive for balance and try to maintain, you know, this human, this human connection. Um, that's a really great story because it, it just really does illustrate how, how personal this job can be, you know, and, you know, mm-hmm. think about how, if you heard, <laughs> you heard that story and then, you know, how heartbreaking that would be if you had been a real jerk to this guy. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So I'll t- can I t- share your story? I'm not trying to one-up you, but I want to share, oh, no. I love share, stories. share a story as well. Um, we had a, a call for a um, for a rectal bleed, and um, we roll into the house. And as I'm rolling into the house, I'm looking at pictures that are on the wall and uh, seeing, you know, I see a family portrait. I see this, uh, you know, there's like seven kids with these shock shocks of red hair, real bright red hair on these kids. They're very easily identified as, you know, this part of the family, right? And I see an image uh, or a picture of a temple, um, and I recognize it as a, a Latter-day Saint temple, right, a Mormon temple. And um, I'm LDS, and so despite some of my loose language, um, not the best Mormon, but I try. And um, But my point is, is that I recognize, I immediately connected with some of these, like, elements of what this guy's about, Right, this family, I mean, this is all in flashes of seconds as we're running down the hall, and we go down this tight corridor in the house to the bedroom, and there's this uh, this um, forty late forties, early fifties guy, and um, he's got a huge pool of blood on his backside, and uh, he is as white as his underpants. I mean, he is ghost white, this guy, and his wife tells us that he has a history of internal bleeding and. She, he got up to go to the bathroom and she fell asleep and didn't hear him come back to bed. She woke up, found him on the ground, right? So we load him up and we're, you know, uh, within seconds of us getting there, he codes. So now we're working a code and I'm thinking, and this guy's bled out. The prognosis is not going to be good. And, um, but we do everything in our power. We're working this guy and we're going down the hallway and I'm doing compressions on him on the gurney. And the door, bedroom door opens up and this like... I don't know, 14 or 15 year old girl, shock of red hair, right? I immediately recognize like this is his daughter and she's like rubbing the sleep out of her eyes and makes like eye contact with me as we go down the hallway and no words were exchanged, but I'm just like, holy cow, the connection, the human connection, right? Like this is someone's father. This is, this is horrible. So we, we load them up, we work them all the way to the hospital. We get to the hospital, the back doors of the Ambo open up and there's this 20 year old girl with a shock of red hair and she's bawling hysterically and and of course we you know we just ma'am we we got to get out of the way you know step aside we got to get through and she's hysterical so we go in long story short they call him almost immediately in the hospital and i sit down i'm charting and i see the family coming into the trauma room and they're you know it's, it's not good and uh later on i walk out into the hallway and I see that the girl who's at the back of the ambo, she's with her, must have been husband or boyfriend or whatever. And they're walking down the hallway toward me. And I just felt like I had to say something. And so I stop her and I said, hey, I'm really sorry. I know what you're going through. 
And in my mind, I felt like I was, I had, there's this connection, right? Like I had, I know a little bit about her family. I know where their family's coming from. Um, you know, from a religious perspective, I know where they're coming from, from uh, this trauma perspective. And yet she turns to me and she goes, you have no idea. And I was, she was, I was back on my heels and I'm like, holy crap. Um, maybe I don't understand. Maybe I don't know what you're going through. Maybe there's nothing I could possibly say in this moment. But my, anyways, the long story short, the reason I'm telling you this, this story is because I hear exactly what you're saying is, man, there's all these people we run on. There's a backstory and there's, there's family and there's friends and there's a connection there that, that they have somewhere. And we, you know, everybody is somebody's baby, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> I've got, uh, I mean, I, I think that's a, a great kind of a, I don't know if you want to go this way or not, but a great segue to have um, other things in your life that provide some sort of balance and stability, you know, so to help you get through those calls. I had a, I had a call similar to that. We actually went on a drowning on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, a little, little two-year-old fell in the pool, and we got there. The call went well. Uh, he wasn't a code, but he was really, really sick, and uh, <clears throat> the one thing that sticks out in that call more than anything, probably if I had to put it like on a top 10 call that bothered me, it would have been this call. Cause it was the, he, this little two year old boy had a 14 or 15 year old sister and the look of just utter despair and anguish and pain that she was going through watching us work on her little brother was almost more than I could handle. So I think it's important to have something that can help you, I don't know, heal or process or, you know, whatever it happens to be, fitness, working out, right. CrossFit, putting together airplane models or tying fishing flies or collecting junk or, you know, gardening or, you know, who knows what. Well, to your point, um, this, the, these, so we're talking about these human beings. These are real, um, real things that are happening to real people. And when you, if you let it, uh, you know, it layers on you like a lacquer, right? And it builds up over time. And, uh, I, you know, I think it's a real issue and it, it requires real processing, um, and real, you know, uh, deliberate, deliberately finding ways to, um, balance your life out, right? Having other outlets, uh, what do they call that? Uh, oh my gosh. Self-care, right? Self-care. Providing yeah, self-care. Like it's that, yeah. it's important that you find ways to do self-care, right? And then, you know, you talk about a couple of things, you know, fly fishing or, you know, junking or mountain bike riding or whatever. But it's a it's a real, you know, if you want to maintain yourself throughout the course of your career, you have to find ways to shed some of the, the difficulties because it does build up on you over time. And, mm -hmm. you know, it can lead to dehumanizing these people we run on. Um, and I think that's unhealthy for the individual it's unhealthy for our customers it's unhealthy for the organization you know for for the fire service at large uh we have to we do have to maintain that human the human connection to the people that we run on right and yeah. so <clears throat> i don't know if i mentioned the last podcast i had my first little uh i don't know if you call it ptsd or what i was teaching back east and i was walking through an airport and i saw a guy he was carrying his young daughter I don't know, two or three years old, but she had fallen asleep in his arms. Mm -hmm. And it looked like, it, like if you pictured a fireman carrying a dead child out of a fire or something, wow. that's what that looked like. And I, arms all hanging oh, all over the place. Oh, just hanging all over the place and everything. Yeah. That was like my first little 
oh man, maybe maybe there is a few layers underneath there of stuff. Yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. kind of weird. No, that is weird. It's. It, I think that's the thing about um, some of the emotional trauma that we suffer uh, is that it's um, it's subject to recall. It's indelibly etched into your mind, and it's subject to recall at any point in time. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you have a moment like that, like it's just some something that triggers a memory. That's very hard to control for. Yeah. Yeah. How do you train for that one? We're talking about training and repetition and going over, you know, different scenarios. Is there any way to train for the afterlife of the fire service? I think we're doing it right now, right? I think it requires um, processing and maybe even therapy, right? Mm -hmm. I've never been to therapy, but maybe I should go. According to my wife, I need to go, right? And I don't mean that flippantly. I mean, like, you know, like. Legitimately, I don't feel like I, I have a very healthy disposition, but all the the years of of uh, lacquer, like I mentioned, building up. Yeah, maybe I need to do something about that. Get ahead of the game before it does become a problem. Yeah, you know, I've had moments when I've well, I have uh, dark thoughts, and um, you know, just let the let the darkness creep in a little bit. And I was driving through the city a while back, and and just. I had this weird moment where I'm looking around like, Hey, I've, Oh, I've had a trauma here and a trauma there and a dead baby here and crushed person here. And like, Holy crap. Yeah. I was like, well, where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? I have no idea. It comes from years of repetitive abuse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't think you're, abuse. I don't think you're alone in that because there's yeah. areas of the city that I drive through and it brings back, mm-hmm. you know, the savage call. That crazy call, the weird call. Yeah. Yeah. Where yeah. news crews show up after you give an on-scene report. Crazy stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think therapy and counseling is good. Uh, I never did. And I thought, oh, that's for the weak-minded. And then uh, right. I went through a divorce and I went through a custody battle and I had some financial issues. And uh, I pursued some counseling and actually it was really good you have to find somebody that you like but i went through it with uh, my daughters and yeah it was uh it was good no that's smart man i think it's you know the the uh i just forgot the expression we just said you know the uh self-care yes <laughs> self-care is important and that's part of that man is seeking is seeking uh, you know if you broke your back you'd go to the doctor you know, if your brain's getting, you know, your, your, your mind is getting insulted. Yeah. Maybe you need to go to the doctor and floss it out a little bit. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. But anyway, there's a podcast. I, I sat down with Carrie Ramella and we talked about fire strong and we talked about kind of the, the nature of well, the nature of mental health and, and how important it is. And, you know, they, they see the, the increase in, in, um, in suicide in in the fire service and, and, uh, you know, of course, the, the drug abuse and alcohol abuse and all these other things that, that are tearing us up. Um, we have to be proactive. I mean, it's, you have to be a self-advocate, right? So I think part of that is recognizing that, um, you know, you mentioned it, that, that mental health, you know, if you're not mentally strong, it's your pussy. <laughs> but the reality is that, you know, you have to, if, you, if you're mentally strong, you need to go, you need to advocate for yourself, and, and just get ahead of any difficulty, right? Right. There's nothing wrong with that, man. It's 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 about being uh, 
self-confident and, and recognizing that you need to take care of you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, on a total side note, and man, we got deep early on this one. Yeah, it's heavy. I'm going to lighten it up a little bit. Please do. So one of the, th- one of the things that I do for, uh, you know, for mental well-being is I love going out and doing picking, you know, my junking thing. Right. Guys find it surprising that uh, I think we've been yard sailing once on Squad 44 in the entire time that I've been there, which is pretty good for me. There's you guys times don't have that time I for that. We don't have time for that. We've got other stuff going on. Training and repetition is much more important, which we can get to later. Yeah. But I recently uh, had a guy call me. I purchased a few things from before he's outside of nashville tennessee he called me he's like hey greg you got to come out here and buy some stuff from me I'm like dwight i can't come out there man you're too expensive it's not worth my time he goes no you need to come out here i'm not i'm not doing too good and i go well for me to drive all the way out there dwight you're gonna have to drop some prices i can't drive all the way out there you know you're you're a hard one to buy from he goes i'm dying of cancer you need to come out here i'm like all right i'll come out there september october he goes no I don't think I'm going to live that long. You got to get out here. I'm not doing too good. Oh so, my gosh! Yeah, so I was like, "Hmm, maybe he's serious, right?" So a couple of days later, his daughter called me and said, uh, "Hey, is there any chance that you might be able to come out here? I know Dwight really wants you to come out here and pick up some stuff." I was like, "Oh, yeah, I'll see what I can do." So anyway, finagled some stuff, and I got some time off, and got a, called in a couple favors, and off I go to Nashville. Right, so I'm friggin' going to Nashville and. There he is. So it turns out he's dying of liver cancer. This is the guy I've purchased from him before, but I have to drink moonshine with him before he'll actually sell me anything. <laughs> and it's not like the label with the barcode on the back, right? It's in the uh, glass jug in his closet, which comes from his buddies, you know, in the woods, moonshine. And uh, I, drank, I drank moonshine with him one day. It cost me an extra day in Nashville. And I'm not blind, but holy cow, man, it was crazy. Anyway, so I get there, and he doesn't look too good. He's in a chair. He's got a quilt over him, and he couldn't. He was too weak to get up and walk and show me stuff that he wanted, right? So I'd have to take pictures of him and come back. Well, he wanted uh, <clears throat> he wanted me to get rid of a couple things in there, and I went after. I was after some hardware bins and some these old porcelain signs. So I took pictures of him. He had six signs. I was going to buy the worst three, and then these three hardware cabinets. They're like 1800s hardware bins. They were super cool. So I came in there and I go, all right, Dwight, this is what I'm looking at. He called me out here. I'm going to go these three signs, worst ones, and I like these three hardware cabinets. I've got $5,000 cash. Here we are. He's like, oh, oh. I go, well, you think about it a minute. I'm going to go out and get another pile going. I'll come back in with some more pictures, right? So I go out and I take some more pictures, and uh, I come back, and he goes, I need $8,000 for that stuff that you got. I go, Dwight, I go, you called me out here. I told you I couldn't do that. You want me out here to get rid of some of this stuff. I can't. You're killing me. I'm not going to make any money on it. I can't right. do that out here. It's like, no, $8,000. And his daughters are sitting back there, and they're just, like, shrugging their shoulders, like, I'm sorry. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, my uh, therapy trip turned into total anxiety. He would not come down on his prices on anything, which is crazy. So uh, I drove that to was Nashville. His, t- his tactic was, you know, I'll get him out here. He'll just be so excited about stuff. He'll spend the money. He'll, he'll, do, <laughs> yeah. it. he'll do it. I couldn't. His stuff is really cool, but holy cow, man. There's no. I've asked him before. I go, hey, man, how about having American pickers come out here? He's like, no, I don't like those guys. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't like the whole negotiation thing. But anyway, I uh, met a guy in St. Louis on the way back. So, hold on. Did you, oh, okay. So did you not buy anything? You went all the way out there and nothing? Uh, well, yeah, there were some signs that I was interested in before. He had a bunch of signs that were on a back fence, and somebody 
purchase the property in the back. So we had all those signs sitting in the mud and dirt and on this trailer and they were all trash. So I did make an offer on those signs that he took. So I came back with like 12 dirty, rusty. I got bit by ants. I got stung <laughs> by a bee, filthy, cut my finger, but I did get those signs. So it ended up being a picking sounds fun. Okay. Trip. It's actually pretty good. That's fun. So yeah. And then I did a big road trip on the way back. So I was able to pick up some more things. Nice. Yeah. And I feel, now I feel good. Little trip like that. Rock out to music, way too loud, overdose on coffee. My mouth gets rock as I eat pistachios and sunflower seeds. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I never learned my lesson about sunflower seeds. I always, I, I, back in the day, uh, I got into sunflower seeds and I would take handfuls of them, jam them in my mouth and just stuff them in my cheek, right? Mm -hmm. And then eat them and transfer them to the other cheek. And I would eat them. <laughs> until my, the insides of my mouth are totally raw. Yeah. And I'm like, well, to this day, I make the same mistake every time. I can't help myself. I love them. There's probably three or four bags on Squad 44 right now. <laughs> B, and, B and C shift kind of share them. It's almost like a kitty item for the squad. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> nice. Squad's been good lately. Yeah? Interesting yeah. calls? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've pretty much had a good working incident every week for the entire summer. Oh. Which is, I was surprised that we had that many, actually. It's been busy, huh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got Good anyone, work. Got anyone in particular that, was, has, that stands out in your mind? For an incident? Yeah. Uh, well, we were recently on that third alarm at 35th Avenue in Van Buren. Mm -hmm. Did you, I was on that call. Were you on that call? Mm -hmm. That was a pretty crazy call. So we, end up, uh, <clears throat> we ended up getting assigned to the roof and uh, east side of the roof in our our orders were to open up uh, the Mansford and check for fire extension. Right. So uh, that was, I mean, it was pretty interesting. Um, well, so let me paint the picture on that one. So, okay. So it was a very large strip mall. Huge. Huge strip mall. And uh, when crews got there, the center occupancy, classic, right, classic center occupancy fire uh, was blowing. And um, he heavy, heavy, heavy. Black smoke rolling out. Um, I'll add a picture. I'll add a picture on the uh, well somewhere. I'll post a picture That'd be good. of it because it's a it's a really great uh, example of of a strip mall fire. So you've got this mansard that runs the length of the building, and um, and so you guys went to the roof to try and cut it off in the mansard. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we got up there um, and uh, flat roof, very, very large. In fact, we came when we came in, uh, we drove on the north side of the structure. Nobody had been assigned back there yet. And when we saw the smoke coming out of the north side, my initial thought was we are going to burn this entire complex down. There's no way that we're going to be able to stop this. There's way too much. It was it was too big. I was like, that was is, my initial thought as I well. I was like, this thing is, we're <laughs> yeah, going to be where here do for, we, how can we possibly cut this off? Well, we're going to be here for two days. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyway, yeah, we got assigned to the roof and it was very challenging. We went up there with, uh, everything that we have. I told the guys to grab, basically just grab everything. So we went up there with, uh, chainsaws, circular saws, you know, the funky tools that we have on the squad, you know, the flathead axes, pickhead axes, the pig, some other massive friggin' hammer tool and all this other stuff, and we just started mm -hmm. getting after it. Uh, it was challenging because the uh, the roof, one, I was nervous about 
being on a commercial building with that much fire so close to us. And right. The, it had gotten up into the attic, which was kind of like a common, I wouldn't say common, there was a firewall, but I don't know how much work it was actually. I never saw the gist of the Well, the amount firewall. of smoke that was in the adjacent occupancies kind of gave me the impression that the, the firewall had been had been perforated in some places and, right. and smoke was getting through. That's what we were thinking, too, because the, uh, the vents that were on top of the roof were, I mean, just pushing pushing black smoke under pressure and i was like oh man this roof is we're already way beyond it and uh, i had the tick camera up there and i didn't really see anything any significant heat sources for the tick camera and we went over and we popped those vents and uh we got some heavy smoke coming out of the vents but no no fire nothing like that so we went up and uh, i was keeping an eye on that where the guys were going to work and uh it was challenging flat roof corrugated metal the whole thing you know that we train on where we started that area, the built-up area on the backside of the mansard, not really a cricket because it runs the whole length of the mansard, but kind of that sloping area to direct water to the drains and stuff. Mm-hmm. How tall um, was the mansard? Uh, it was only about 18 inches. But we were faced with two inches of foam on top of probably two to three inches of six to seven layers of asphalt shingles on top of plywood, on top of almost like this pumice lightweight concrete that was poured on top of the metal decking. So this is the classic re-roof where it's just been re-roofed and re-roofed and they just keep layering it up. They never peel it back. That was it. It was insane. So, again, I'm so lucky to have the guys on my truck. We uh, we stayed up there. I think we cut five inspection holes and did one event ventilation hole and popped two uh, ventilation hatches on top of the roof. Went up there. We went through a bottle, worked our butts off, Came down, refilled our bottles, changed the saw blades, filled the saws up with gas, went back up and went through another entire bottle. And uh, we just continued to work our way east. And we got up to about 15, 10 to 15 feet from the firewall next to the adjacent fire building and never got any fire in the mansard, which mm-hmm. was surprising to me. But that was, uh, that, was a, that was a good fire. That was pretty good. Yeah, it took us, well, we were there for what? Four hours before we finally kind of got control of it. Yeah, and we're going defensive in that in that primary occupancy. Lost the roof there, but the firewalls maintained. Yeah, contained it in that, uh, which was crazy. Yeah. So true Mansards. Uh, this is pretty interesting. Going, we've been back to look at it twice mm-hmm. since the fire. So the Mansard that comes out, it just if you're if you were to walk. Again, to paint kind of a picture, if you were to walk up to a storefront, look above you, there's ceiling above you. It ended up being lath and plaster and probably like 14, 16 feet high. That was way up there. So poking holes in it from the bottom was virtually impossible, right? So, um, but when we got up and actually got some holes cut, we realized that it was open attic space from the very front of that mansard all the way to the other side of the building. So, oh, wow. Hindsight. So it was a true mansard. Yeah. yeah. So in hindsight, it would have been much better to go into one of the occupancies, put a ladder up, blow out. It ended up being plywood and lath and plaster. But if you were able to cut through that, you could actually get a good look into the mansard, and you would have been able to look, mm-hmm. you know, either direction. So I don't know. It was that was a good one. We've had a, yeah, we, had a, a- we had a tanker rollover with an oil spill, which uh, was pretty good. That was an interesting call. Uh, went around a corner too fast, and he flipped up on his side, hit the jersey wall, then rolled off the jersey wall. So we were faced with a dome cover that was leaking hot oil uh, out of the dome. There wasn't enough room to get a dome clamp on it. 
So we ended up cribbing it up with uh, some cribbings, four by fours. We put that up against a dome cover, and then we put a bunch of cribbing along the jersey wall. We took a sawzaw and cut two mud flaps off the back of the semi, dropped them in between those cribbing pieces, and then dropped an airbag in there and inflated the airbag, which closed mm. the dome camp. Mm. So stopped the leak, which is pretty good. And we stayed there for the whole, the rotators came and flipped that thing back up, which was kind of cool. Brought in a nurse tanker. That's and uh, yeah, brought that in and drilled it. Tempe ended up drilling it. So we got there, we stopped the leak, we threw up some rescue jacks to kind of stabilize it because sometimes they can shift when you offload them. Stabilized it, Tempe right. drilled it, and then we stayed there for the offload. So Cool. Yeah, good calls. It's like being on a fire truck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, doing it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. That's why I'm worried about leaving. I love yeah. it. Yeah, it's, yeah, I think that's one of the hardest parts of entertaining that uh, transition into your next life. Yes. Right. Next phase of your life. There's a lot of good stuff that you're going to, uh, you know, not be a part of. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That's all right. You can be like some guys, though, and go find another fire department and start over. Probably not going to happen. <laughs> uh, I could see, uh, see why that would be an easy transition, though. You know, and some guys do that and do, do very well. You know, right. Well, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, mean, in this lifetime, there's so many other things you could do. So nothing wrong with that. You know, once you get to the end of this journey, you find another journey and off you go. Mm -hmm. Right. A lot of cool stuff to do. Yeah. It's different. I still have uh, the teaching thing in the back of my mind. I may, I may teach for a little while after I go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy that. Nice. It's pretty fun. Yeah. And I'm fortunate too, because we, uh, you know, we're. Um, just fortunate that I work on a truck with great guys that love to run calls in a busy part of a large city. So we get the, we get those calls, you know, we've got the last three years page. We've got the ghost squad 44 page on Instagram and we have guys direct messaging us all the time. You know, God, you guys do more stuff in a month than we do an entire year. We're just, Hey, we're in a, we're in a busy area. We get some good stuff. Right. So unfortunate for people around us, but fortunate for us as far as, you know, training and experience. And Right. Well, you know, you talk about, I, I say this all the time, and I'm, I'm going to say it again but for fear of repetition, but I'm going to say it anyway, uh, which is I, I do not wish ill will on anybody, but if it's going to happen... <laughs> Yeah, I want to be working. Might as well be. I'm, I'm on duty. Yeah, um, I agree with that. You know, and that's the. I think you know we talk about being a professional. We can go back to the beginning of this whole thing. You know, you talk about being a pro, and uh, you know, being having a, a high level of knowledge, skills, and abilities. Well, that's you know, if you get the opportunity to execute and you utilize those skill sets, man, what a great. That's that's where the reward lies, right? Is being able to do something, do it well execute under pressure, you know, when it matters, when people's lives are hanging in the balance. That's that's a good feeling to know that you did something successful yeah. and helped somebody out. So funny that you say that because it kind of goes back to where we started this conversation. I don't know if we were recording yet or not, but about just training and repetition and training and yeah. sets and reps and getting stuff over and over. You know, we recently did that blue door training, mm-hmm. with, you know, Halligan and forcing entry and outward doors and inward doors and stuff like that. And, uh, we, we have been down 
several times on the squad. And it's so funny. You know, you go down there, you get the training, and you're like, oh, man, this is really good training. But if you don't do it consistently or if you don't go down there and run the same, you know, say maybe it's an outward opening door, and there's, you know, different ways that you can do it. But if you don't repeat the steps of putting the halogen in in a certain way or whatever, yeah. it's easy. If, if you have to rotate that halogen two or three times, you'll forget and you'll get backwards. And then it's it seems like an easy task, but if you don't have the repetition, it's a, a couple of steps that you'll forget how to do. So we've, we've seen that going down there. Yeah. Well, that's you bring up a really good point, which is the – you know, we talk about training skills and it's not enough to show somebody a PowerPoint and say, all right, you got it. Um, you need to revisit it. You need to put the hands on the skill, you know, uh, challenge the, the motor sensory system to, you know, to adapt and to build the, uh, you know, the, the muscle, the muscle firing patterns to be able to execute. So I was watching the videos that I can't remember the guy's name, the cat who puts out the, that training. Um, I'll link to it in the, in the show notes, but, um, come back around but it's really really good training and the youtube videos are fantastic that this guy puts out and it's funny to me because he uh you know he does a baseball swing and spikes the spikes the door jam and uh and he does that to the left i guess he's left-handed and then he talks about in the video he says yeah all right well okay so you got to be able to do it both ways you got to be ambidextrous and he goes and i'm he goes i'm a horrible i'm a lefty and so trying to go to the right i suck and then he swings it and spikes that door like like nobody's business right he just nails it and i'm like and I think to myself, huh, okay, you suck on that side, right? Okay, well, clearly the guy has put in the reps. You know, he's he's trained his body. Even though it may be uncomfortable to him, he, he's still able to execute flawlessly in his opposite hand. That, that boils back to training and repetition. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, being part of being a professional is being willing to uh, acknowledge areas of weakness, and then come up with a plan to strengthen those areas of weakness, and then do it going out and and consistently uh, training and repping out the skill sets. Right. So important. Yeah. Yeah. And no matter, it's so weird. You can go out and train fifteen different ways on how to open doors, and when you get the call, it'll be the sixteenth version of something that you haven't tried yet. <laughs> so how do you overcome that? Uh, through previous training, you know, it's weird. It's, uh, I kind of use an example of us with extrication training. So I get some grief cause we go down, we were cutting cars every Friday. We did it for a long time, almost a year. We cut cars every Friday and we try to create different scenarios all the time. Something different, not just drop a car and we'll cut the doors off, right? Put a car on its side, put a car upside down, roll the dash with a vehicle upside down roll the dash using the center section if you don't have access to the A posts on either side, right? Is there a way that you can roll the dash from the inside? Or I would have the guys do extrication uh, with Noel Hurst of the whole macho tools. All right, we're going to just do a tip, tip regular side out like this. And they're like, that's it? I'm like, yeah, but no Hurst tool or whole macho. you got to use everything but, right? So it was jumping into the toolbox that we have and adapting and overcoming challenges that may face you with tools that you don't necessarily use, which I think is critical because, I mean, we're, we're thinkers, you know, the same way. So it'd be interesting to go down and do the blue, the blue door training, the forcible entry props, but this time 
you don't have a Halligan. You've got everything on your truck except a Halligan. How are you going to get inside the door? Mm. You know, so you start with, so you work your way back. You, you, you train the fundamental principles, and then you take those principles and you overlay them into different tool sets. Yes. Right? But you understand how a door opens. Right. You understand what are the things that are holding a door shut. Yes. And so now you, you know what you're working against. And so if you don't have a Halligan, what are you going to do? Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, change it up a little bit. And you're right. right, doing the left-handed baseball swing, trying to drive that pick into the door frame is, if you don't practice that the first time you do it, you're going to spike your buddy. <laughs> so. Yeah, make sure you create a wide berth, right? Big blood circle around you. Uh, Stand back, right. everybody. This is going to go bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm reading, uh, oh, crap, I can't remember the name of the book. Stand by. I'll tell you the name of the book. I read an interesting book while you're looking it up. The yeah. flu <clears throat> about you know there's all this controversy about getting your flu shots and all this other stuff, but it breaks down the history of the flu and the virus and how it changes. <coughs> Excuse me, and how it changes its you know its basic DNA strand every ten to eleven years, and how they've come up with you know trying to pick a number of you know flus that they think is going to be the big hitters for that season mm. and i was always kind of on the fence on getting a flu shot and then i read that book and i don't think i'll ever miss another one again ever the flu they got to you huh? it. yeah it got to me yeah <laughs> definitely <clears throat> what'd you read what's that got to do with anything <laughs> it was because you were talking about reading a book <laughs> oh, you, oh yeah, you so i was like i just read a book uh-huh. uh did you find it? I did. So, the, so speaking of training, let's get back on training. Okay, training. So, um, <clears throat> General Jim Mattis, they call him Mad Dog Mattis, right? Marine Corps General. He wrote a book called Call Sign Chaos, and I just picked it up and I just started reading it, and um, it is a tremendous book. But one of the things he talks about early on in the book, he's talking about going into um, into combat in Iraq in a desert storm. And, you know, there's a huge peacetime gap, right, between uh, Vietnam and Desert Storm. And so he's like, yeah, he was, I had a couple of Vietnam vets. He goes, but the majority of my young warfighters are inexperienced, have no combat experience. And they are going into, you know, and they were projecting uh, in Desert Storm that there would be tremendous resistance. Turned out to not be the case, but they were projecting huge resistance. And so... In order to make sure that these uh, Marines were ready, they spent so much time rehearsing, you know, building the skill set and then rehearsing the operations and the evolutions. And, you know, they talked about specifically breaching minefields and, and how they would get the engineers up, how they would defend them, how they'd move through the minefields. And um, in training, they got it down to 20 minutes. When they had to do it in battle under under fire and under uh, war fighting conditions, they did it in 11 minutes. Wow. Big difference, right? And he, he basically circles back and he says, that's because we trained. That's because we were super highly prepared. And then you add the stress of combat and accelerated things a little bit, but they, but their ability to execute comes from the reps, the sets and reps in training. And, you know, so we can learn a lot from that in our neck of the woods, right? And in the, in the world that we live in, um, you are going to be under duress at some point and you're going to fall back to your level of training. You're not going to, it's not going to escalate your skill set. It's going to, it puts, cramps your ability to think, it cramps your ability to move and, and execute. And so you, you're going to fall backwards to your training. So where's that lie? And you have to be honest with your self-assessment of what your capabilities are. You can't be worried about what your friends think. 
Um, well, maybe you should be worried. If they think your skill set's weak, maybe there's something to be said for that. Right? Maybe you need to be a little bit uh, self-aware and think about you know what you bring to the table. But to uh, to shine off training because you're like, man, I'm too, I, I'm good, I'm good. I don't, I don't need that. Well, you're weakening the team, and you need to think about how that impacts everybody around you and yourself. Yeah, well, I agree with that. So I appreciate that you guys, you know, you guys talk when you talk about all the training that you guys are doing on the squad. I mean, you're tasked with so many different skill sets. I don't know how you couldn't be training. The the concern of I would be all constantly worried about what I was missing in my skill set because there's so many. Uh, disciplines you have to address, you know, in the, on the heavy, on the heavy rescue. Um, so we, men- we mentioned that we talk about that. Where where are we lacking? What do we need to work on? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Just because there's so much. Good. So you guys, so as a, do you do that as a crew? Do you guys as a company sit down and go, okay, what? I feel strong in this area, but I know I'm missing this skill set. Mm-hmm. We do. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I. include my crew I won't say on all decision making but on a very large portion of decision making especially when it comes to uh, some of these funky calls you know I'm I'm, like I said I'm very fortunate I have great guys that are super smart they're they're well trained they're self-motivated and they have good opinions so there's times you know like if we get special called we've been called out west a few times to uh, assist with extrications and things like that and uh it's uh we'll we'll always try to take 15 to 20 seconds at least two or three of us and look at what is taking place and come up with the what we think is going to be the best plan and then a backup plan if it doesn't work and it's hard to it's hard to um get involved in something that's already taking place Hmm. that makes sense yep so but yeah um, yeah, we talk about that. I mean, there's there's things, you know, we get called the Flatlanders because we don't do a lot of mountain rescue stuff over there. So, you know, as far as setting up systems and doing unsupported pickoffs and stuff like that, um, that was one of the areas that we recognized that we were probably a little bit lacking in. So we've got ropes hanging in the station bay, and two shifts later, the guys were all out there going up and down ropes. Thrashing and, and dangling. Thrashing and dangling. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so that's awesome. It was good. It helps having self-motivated people like that surrounded yeah. by him, which is really, really good. Well, so that's that's what I think is ideal. Is as a team leader, right, as a company officer, inspiring your guys to go out and do stuff, right? Asking hard questions, giving them an opportunity to input in the in the uh, in the training matrix, right? If you say, "Hey, what what do you guys feel like you need to work on?" and of course. As a company officer, you have to have an idea of what that looks like. You, you know, you're doing an assessment of what you guys need to work on, et cetera. But then you, you solicit their input. And I think when you talk about building a team and building capacity, giving your, your young, enthusiastic members an opportunity to input is important. Mm-hmm. Now, if they always go, well, oh, we're good. just want to play. You know, let's just watch. You know, there's a game on. Well, clearly you have to nip that in the bud. And, and you have to allow <laughs> yeah. them. You have to kind of redirect, right? And say, well... Yeah, the game's on, but let's talk about well, But we're going to do some training, and, and let's talk about what you think is important to train on and get them to participate in that process. And, and I think that inspires, you know, inspires them, and, and you know, you're giving them a, a place at the table, and I think that's important. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Yeah, and they know. 
we usually end up, even when the game is on or, you know, it's Sunday. <laughs> I hear this a lot. Hey, today's Sunday. I didn't think we were going to train on Sundays. <laughs> you know, it's like, nah, I don't know what happened. It just accidentally fell onto our schedule today, you know, because we'll end up going out and going and doing something. You know, and it might be just something simple as uh, as driving through. We have two or three significant, you know, the Flying J truck stops in our area. Great opportunity to go look at placards, look at trucks, look at the different over-the-road vehicles that are out there. CNG, diesel fuel, tankers, placards, weights. You know, how are we going to lift this? How are we going to stabilize it? If, uh, you know, if there's a flatbed that's hauling a bunch of tractors on it, flips over in a car, what are we going to have to stabilize on these tractors? You know, how are you going to estimate the weights? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can do. Um, and it's, you know, those guys kind of have a competition. It's kind of, kind of good because, you know, <laughs> just having a little competition on coming up with weights and, you know, guessing how much things weigh and what we're going to lift based on angles and all that other stuff. And they actually, I think they enjoy it. It might just be pulling the wool over my eyes and entertaining me but uh yeah it's pretty good though yeah and who knows we'll probably never get that call or we'll get something that we just haven't really thought about but we'll be ready for it because we talk about it in so many different you know perspectives so that's the you look at um you know speaking about less lessons we can learn from military right We've been at war for a long time in the last 18 years, right, in Afghanistan, et cetera. So this doesn't really apply at the, at the moment. But this idea that you're, you know, that the more you train in peace, the less you bleed in war. You know, as busy as you guys are, you, you could often, you could say, well, you know what, man, we get lots of reps. We don't need to train. But if you truly want to be a master of your craft, you got to go out there and, and continuously hone your skill set. And, um, you know. There's a there's an adage that's floating around. So you can't train you can't train enough for a job that can kill you. That's so true. It's funny that you mentioned that. I recently had a comp, uh, conversation with a hazmat specialist. He's a guru. He's kind of like a hazmat god on the east side. And uh, we've seen some weird trends occurring with hazmat calls, PPE, setting up the calls, miscommunication, becoming complacent. Hmm. And uh, you're right. You can't train enough doing something, preparing for something that will kill you. And uh, man, I'm terrified that we're going to end up hurting or killing somebody. On one well, of what are some calls. of the what are some of the things you're seeing that are happening out there that guys are doing? Uh, well, the biggest doing. one is um, I've seen a trend, and it's not just in Phoenix. It's valley wide. It goes from coast to coast in the valley for everybody that operates together. There's been a recent trend of throwing an air pack on without your turnouts. So, and I think that that might have started with the summer, uh, with summertime when it got hot summertime and the engineer by the truck working at the pump panel who's in the smoke coming from the house. will throw an air pack on. So he's not breathing the smoke. Okay. Totally get it. Okay. And then it went from there. It went to overhaul. Well, I'm going to do overhaul in my blues and I'm just going to put an air pack on to protect my airway. Right questionable on that one you could you could have arguments pros and cons either way right um but then i've been on a couple calls where we've shown up as a hazmat unit and there have been crews wearing blues and air packs right and i don't know anyone. are we talking like gas leaks or are we talking about what kind of hazmat uh, well one was a uh it was a i think it was an accidental I won't say accidental. It was an accidental death. It was a guy that died secondary to carbon monoxide poisoning. 
I think it was an old guy that came home, left his car running, had to go to the bathroom or something. I don't know. But anyway, there was no indication that he was going to kill himself, but he died from carbon monoxide poisoning. And when you saw him, it was the absolute textbook, textbook picture of carbon monoxide, for cherry red skin, the whole deal. And uh, the crews that were in there were wearing air packs, no turnouts, right? So even one guy was wearing shorts and had an air pack on. Carbon monoxide has a huge flammability range, by the way. So it's yeah. So so, so talk to us. Talk to us about so, why that is a problem. Uh, it's a problem because one on on these calls, if you're not a, even some hazmat guys sometimes forget or don't realize or don't take into consideration the every aspect of the hazard that you're running into. The other thing is if you can go back to all the volumes, everything we talk about about when you wear air packs and turnouts, and I don't ever remember reading anything in there ever guideline procedure where we wear air packs and no full turnouts when we're doing it right nowhere you know so okay so i'm gonna push back on here just a little bit sure so i i get it it's not in the sop right but what i want you to tell me is help me understand why that's a problem what's the hazard all right so let's take the carbon monoxide one right okay no meters don't know what's going on determine a carbon monoxide guy that maybe that's what it is, right? So what if you're inside that flammable range and you walk inside there? It's like, I don't remember what it is offhand. It's like, I'll just pull some numbers. That's like 15 to 70% carbon monoxide is flammable. Like natural gas is like 5 to 15%. So it's like six times more flammable than natural gas. You don't know what it is when you walk in there. What if you walk in with just an air pack thing and it's a carbon monoxide poisoning and you have a little static electricity spark and that thing flashes inside there? You're breathing fine, right? But you're cooked from head to toe. Yeah. And then <clears throat> the other thing is, like, there was one, uh, there was an incident, I don't know where it happened, um, but it was like, uh, it was some weird call, like maybe a white powder call or something, where guys um, just put air packs on and no PPE, Yeah. right? So, yeah, um, how, how would you know? I mean, there's no way of knowing. You should protect yourself all the time, especially in today's changing world of... Uh, nefarious acts, right? right. How the do you home know? base meth you lab, a, that type of stuff. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's a maybe it's a white powder call, but how are you going to determine whether or not it's radioactive? How are you going to determine whether or not it's fentanyl? How are you going to determine whether or not there's actually some sort of biological, you know, something on there, right? Uh, there were recently some photos of a hazmat call the guy had uh, air pack on wearing blues um, with some weird white cloud, right? How do you know that that's not transdermal? How do you know it's not going to eat your skin? How do you know that you're not going to get contaminated in some way with something that can get into your skin? So yeah, if you're going to have an air pack on, you should probably have your skin protected. And if you're going to have a meter in your hand, you should probably be breathing air. That's the other thing. If you've got a meter in your hand, you're going down range of meter or something, you should be breathing air. Right. You know, odors. Oh, it's, it's okay. There's no odor. Okay, what does that mean to me? Nothing. doesn't mean anything to me, right? So there are times that you can't smell like natural gas. What if it's an underground leak? You might get a whiff every now and then, but the dirt can take some of that mercaptan out of it, and you may have a lot more gas than what you actually think is there. Right. So use your meters. If you're not getting any meter readings, then you can start de-escalating. But I think it's a trend. And, And the problem is, you know, when... One crew does it, no matter where it is. It could be Goodyear to Gilbert. One crew does it, nothing is said about it. 
another non-tech crew sees it, they think it's okay. Suddenly you condone it. And then next thing you know, then it's, you know, it's, it's that, what's that, the, that old saying about, yeah, the normalization of deviance has hit us hard in the hazmat world. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because you have, you know, is it, are you saying that that's tech crews or are you saying, and I don't know, I'm trying to, you know, bust anybody here, but what I'm saying is, is it non-tech companies that are responding on special operations calls as the first responder and then they're making, some of them. yeah, yeah. I mean, I imagine mm-hmm. it's kind of at every level, right? I think you can get some complacency with your special ops companies too, who, sure, who feel like, ah, you know, we know it's not a big deal. You know how deal. long we I've been doing this. this? Yeah. Yeah, I know. No, it's never exploded on me before. We're going to be fine. Um, yeah. And that attitude can get you get your ass in a sling in a heartbeat. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I friggin' hate putting my turnouts on for a CO two leak at QT at three o'clock in the morning. I hate it. Yeah, but it's the right thing to do. It goes back to that whole professionalism thing. Right. What do we get paid to do? I'm getting paid good money to spend an extra two minutes to put my turnouts in an air pack on on a seven minute call if it ends up being nothing. Yeah, it takes you two minutes to put your gear on. <laughs> Fucking three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> three o'clock in the morning on a CO call. Yeah, yeah copy that. Uh. <laughs> so it's that's an interesting thing. You know, we we had a uh, um, a gas leak in a house recently that we responded to, and um, the readings that we got were I want to say it was a hundred percent gas. It's bad. It's bad. And um, you know, the first responding truck was parked. Dead center of mass in that front of that house. And so, you know, the discussion was uh, we need to park a little bit further away, a little bit more pessimistically, and we need to, you know, uh, isolate, evacuate, and deny entry in a wide berth. You know, and just take one Google search and you'll find a house exploding um, from a natural gas leak in a house. And so I was like, so, you know, you start thinking about that. You go, okay, we need to be a little bit more pessimistic about the way we do this. The crew, they were, they were on point. They went in with their turnouts, you know, metered, got that initial reading. And then we opened everything up and backed out, right? Backed away from the building and allowed it to um, self-vent. Uh, you know, the gas was secured at that point. And right. So, you know, interesting, you know, it, it, for, for, a period, for a short period of time, the house was a bomb waiting for an ignition source. And uh, we have to be completely aware of what we're doing and you know since some of it's a learning curve for us but you know that first crew that pulled up they didn't they just were a little bit ignorant to that situation and didn't understand the the potential that existed in that right in that environment so you know there's an educational piece here we need to train ourselves we need but those who know need for sure need to be the most diligent about setting a good example yeah you talk about that learning curve. That learning curve, it's important to maintain that learning curve by making sure that you are continuing continuing education classes. Because mm. over time, it's just like the repetition on opening a door. Which way did that Halligan tool go in again? Yeah. If you're not going to the continuing education classes, you're going to forget some of that basic stuff that is so critical. The basic stuff that's critical. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why I was busting your chops. I'm like, okay, you're going to have to tell me why. Because I get it. It's written in the SOP, and we go, okay, well, what landed it in the SOP in the first place? Safety. Yeah, but why? See what I'm saying? Like, if you if you understand, it's great to say, yeah, it's in our procedures. It's part of our policies. Yeah, great. So what? Help me understand why it's in there. And if you understand, you know, if, if the, the line firefighter understands why a policy exists, they're much more likely to be complicit with the policy because they understand the hazard. 
right? Our guys are, our guys and gals are not stupid people, right? So they need to, we need to help them understand what the, the under, understand the why behind the expectation. Um, particularly when we talk about hazard zone, right? They need to understand the hazard. Did I answer your question? No, you totally did. Oh, I did? Okay. No, no, you absolutely Good. did. But that's, but I, the, but I was like, I'm going to challenge you on this. I, I said that because I wanted to say like, you know, it's, yeah, it's in the policy. So, so what? Uh, where'd that come from? Right. Right. It's, oftentimes those SOPs are written in blood. You know, some bad thing happened years before. We don't have the organizational memory for it because it was before our time or whatever. And now there's this policy in place. You know, I just recently sat in uh, one of the, I think it was the last episode, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, talked to Chris Pierce. And we talked about his dad getting, um, you know, cutting into that Tollyween tank and then exploding. And now we, you know, it changed the face of the, the hazmat world. Nationwide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So understanding that, like, if we can go back and go, okay, why why do we have these policies in place? Why do we have these procedures, these expectations? Because we are dealing with, you know, very uh, significant potential risk to life and limb to not only ourselves but to those around us as well. And our job is to mitigate those hazards. And you can't do that if you don't know what you're doing. Which takes us right back to training. <laughs> training well, all, roads, training. all roads lead to training. That's very true. Everything we've talked about goes back to training. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ooh, I can't wait. What's on? I work Sunday. We're going to train on Sunday. It's on, man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's going to be awesome. Right on. I'm going to tell him, hey, I did a podcast with Rain Gay. We got to go train. I'm fired up. <laughs> fired up. We're going to uh, do, so we're going to go to a, a resiliency class. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to, uh, we're going to calculate some loads, and we're going to breach some uh, breach some doors. You know what we are going to do? We're going to go do a walkthrough because uh, – Oh, what do you got in mind? There's a uh, building in our area that has a mansard that looks exactly like the one that we burned at 35th and Van Buren. Probably the same time frame building area. I want to get up on the roof and see what it looks like. And it's an L-shaped strip mall. Probably has, I don't know, 10 or 12 small occupancies in it. Yeah. So I cannot think, I can't stress enough or think, think highly enough of the need for understanding your first due and the buildings that exist there. Training. It's like pre-training. It's important. It's a form of training. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, you think about the, uh, the hazards that exist, right? There's a, um, this is a great example. I can't remember the exact crossroads of this building, but there is a haunted house, a famous, you know, locally it's a famous haunted house. Well, I didn't realize this until just recently, but that haunted house stays, uh, uh, in place all year round. That sounds bad. Yeah. So when you walk inside there, the internal, the inside of this, this big box building looks like no big deal, but it is a legitimate rat maze on the inside of this building that has all kinds of, you know, just entrapment hazards. If it were to go on fire in, in you know, in June, you know, like, oh, there's yeah. no big deal. It's Halloween's not, they've got it all torn down. Nope. That's it's a legitimate uh, haunted house year round. There's a, there's a building right down the way here that's, uh, it looks like a, I'd say medium-sized commercial occupancy. Mm-hmm. But you go inside, there's plywood that's been built up in a curved hallway form, and there's studios for different activities that are take place inside there. And I would never have thought twice about it if I wasn't a firefighter. But um, going in there and seeing it, I was like, oh, man, this is a big cluster. 
<laughs> so I just wrote Rain a note. By the way, if you're listening, you heard us giggle because I have to go to the bathroom, and I didn't know if we should stop the podcast or what. So no, I'm going to make you suffer. <laughs> Let's drive on. I've been suffering. I'm right up to here. <laughs> hey, man, we've been going for an hour, so let's pull a, we'll pull the plug and let you go to the bathroom. <laughs> awesome. Hey, that man, was good. As always, pleasure. That was fun. This is my last one. I was like, man, people make fun of me in class about squirreling and going off track and, you know, chasing butterflies or whatever it is. And I listened to that, and I was like, man, I don't think I answered one question that Rain asked me through that whole podcast. I don't think you did today either, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, well. It's all good. It's yeah. always good. Thank you very much. All right, bro. Say, hey, tell me one more time the uh, your Instagram. I know you've said it like 25 times today, but what? where where can people find you if they want to reach out or you, know, you mentioned these Instagram pages. What are they? Because yeah. really, the squad ones are really interesting and lots of cool content. All right. So uh, I think the most there's there's a couple of them. At Ghost Squad 44 is kind of what we do on Squad 44. A lot of interesting photos, uh, stories, videos, uh, some memes, some banter back and forth with some East Coast crews and things like that, which is good and humorous and funny. And then uh, mine is at last the number three years all run together at last three years where I'll get more creative. I'm coming up with two years left now, so I'm not sure if I'm going to change the name or not. But at <laughs> last. Can you put it in the countdown? <laughs> yeah, at last three years. And uh, I'll get more open with that as I get closer to the end. You know, appropriate, but still more stuff about what we do. And then if you want to follow Cool Junk, at Hawk Salvage. That's my junking Instagram. So right that's three. Cool. Right on. And, of course, uh, this podcast can be found at, uh, or the Instagram page for it is at Five Ground Fitness. And uh, on Facebook as well. All right. Take care, y'all. Hey, so thanks for tuning in today and listening to uh, that great conversation with Greg and I. Appreciate you listening. If you subscribe, get on Apple Podcasts, leave a review, share your thoughts and comments. Uh, I take that feedback seriously. Uh, Also, feel free to reach out to me via email or Instagram or whatever. I can be found at uh, raingray at firegroundfitness.com. Or you can go to uh, Fireground Fitness on Instagram or on same thing on Facebook. Check us out. Leave a comment, review, what have you. Get some. <laughs>